Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Stupid is as stupid does. Maybe you've seen Forrest Gump. Uh, it's a good movie. It still requires a bit of discretion, um, but uh, with a good message. And the protagonist, Forrest Gump, when asked um, about something, when accused of being stupid, he, he responds, my mama always taught me stupid is as stupid does. Uh, meaning, judge a person by their actions. Uh, not how they look, how they sound. Uh, Put differently, uh, wisdom, I think he is talking about wisdom, wisdom is proven by her fruits. Uh, Wisdom is proven by the results produced in one's everyday life. Another way to define wisdom is simply your set of truths applied and applied well to produce the life that you desire. Now, while this is a good start, to defining wisdom and discerning wisdom, Forrest Gump's wisdom test isn't perfect. Uh, Why? Because the real litmus test of wisdom is whether it produces an unfading joy, an unfading joy. Now, let me unpack what I mean by that. Again, wisdom, uh, bottom line, it's the ability to produce your desired life uh, based on the choices you make. So, put this way, Wisdom is relative because someone can be really wise in one area of life, but very foolish and unproductive in another area of life. Perhaps you desire uh, financial success. That's your desired life. And so you develop good financial savvy. Uh, You work late hours, but for example, you are terrible at relationships and you neglect your family. And so you might have financial wisdom, but certainly you lack Um, relational wisdom and and wisdom about the goodness of family and vice versa if perhaps your desired life is a warm family so you might have a high EQ and you're very wise at nurturing relationships but you lack in other necessary skills to make that family life all the more productive the point is that you may well indeed produce a certain desired life by the choices you make But the real question is, how long will the joy last? How long will the joy of those finances or the joy of the family last? Now, the Bible is absolutely clear that there is life after this life. There is life after death. And so the real test of wisdom, therefore, is whether your wisdom, your stupid is as stupid does, produces a desired life that lasts with unfading joy. So in this respect, there really truly is only one ultimate wisdom. There's only one true wisdom, the wisdom to make you wise for eternal life.
and only salvation that provides uh, eternal life, salvation. So I appreciate what Paul writes to his protege, Timothy, in his second letter to him. And how, from childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, meaning the scriptures, God's revealed word, which are able to make you wise for salvation. That's the pinnacle of wisdom, that it makes you wise for salvation. If whatever worldview you live by doesn't lead you to reconciliation with God through Christ, and therefore to place faith in him and to know eternal life, then it's, it's not wisdom. Ultimately, it falls flat. So the real question then is, not only about unfading joy, but what is your desired life? Is it only some form of a good, earthly, temporary life? I hope for you and me that it is so much more. So this is why uh, my summary prayer today um, is, Lord, make me wisely affectionate for eternal joy. Make me wisely desire. Make shape and transform my inner desires, my foundational um, joys and, and what my heart pursues, what makes me happy and glad, let it be eternal joy, that I would seek after eternal joy. So meaning, let me value a delayed but forever happiness, <clears throat> excuse me, over an immediate but temporary happiness. Now, this makes complete sense that we're talking about this because the greater context of today's passage is still Paul uh, laying out the church's sexual ethic. It's not the comprehensive, uh, exhaustive teaching on the church's sexual ethic, but certainly Paul addresses it. We touched on it last week. And today, the, today's passage still is a flow, uh, an, uh, just a continuation of the sexual ethic. Now, what Paul is saying then basically, in short, is that sexuality ultimately is a matter of wisdom. The foundation to a God-honoring sexuality is wisdom. So let's make sure we're connecting the dots here. Again, consider the notion, uh, the real litmus test of wisdom is whether it produces unfading joy. Okay? So being affectionate desiring, prioritizing eternal joy over immediate and temporary happiness is ultimately a matter of wisdom. And so when you think of sexuality, sexuality, just how the design of it, it is so immediate focused, instant gratification focused. Right here, right now, what I feel and smell and touch, experience my senses, I want to be satisfied and gratified right now. But what we're to Instead, nurture, look to the spirit to nurture and cultivate in our hearts is more of an appetite for eternal, unfading joy. So here's the organizing question for today. Um, what does it look like to live wisely? That's why now we can just generally address the whole notion of wisdom because wisdom is the foundation for a godly high view of sexuality. Wisdom that seeks out an unfading joy. So what does it look like to live wisely as a Christ follower? To live for eternal joy. Here's the first big idea that I want you to see with me. And first I'm going to nerd out 
first big idea is the second person plural, <laughs> okay? Um, so I'm taking you back to some grammar class in English or ESL class. Second person plural, meaning addressing a collective people, you. But more to the point, I think what Paul wants us to, to take away is to stay connected Stay connected. If you're going to live wisely as a Christ follower, you must stay connected to the church. Let me show you. So we pick up in verse 15. It's astounding. It's mind-blowing how often Paul, and especially concentrated in this string of imperatives and commands and exhortations, that Paul is addressing the church. I have to admit, up to this week, Every time I read this passage, I've read Ephesians many times, but I always just took in these exhortations to me personally, that I, Albert, as a Christ follower, individual Christ follower, need to look carefully how I walk and not as unwise and wise. But when you go under the hood and you appreciate the grammar of this, Paul is addressing the church as a whole. When he says, look, that's second person, plural, imperative. Look carefully then how you walk, second person plural imperative. Not as unwise, but wise. If you can appreciate language and grammar here, these uh, adjectives or adverbs, I'm not sure which one it is, but they're conjugated to match second person plural. Paul is addressing the church. Making the best use, that's the verb there, it's a participle, again, it's in the plural. Most likely, this letter would have been read in the presence of the gathered church. And so it also makes sense that Paul is addressing the church collective, the body, the many members, but were to be listening to this and understanding this this instruction in the context of a collective. If you're a Star Trek fan, the collective, the Borg. (laughs) That's the one time it's okay to, to be the Borg as the church to to have a oneness in that sense and to hear this command being given to the body, not just individual believers. Going on, therefore, verse 17, do not be foolish. Again, this is a verb here, second person plural, and again, imperative, a command, but understand, same thing, second person plural. And do not get drunk. You would think that this especially is an individual command because individuals get drunk. But no, here again, it's to the collective body. Don't get drunk as a a group. Second person plural, imperative. And instead, be filled. Again, second person plural, imperative, a command to be filled with the Spirit. And so even here, we'll get into it more later towards the end of the sermon, but as a body, we're supposed to be filled with the Spirit together. And I hope that's what we're experiencing even this morning as we're gathered here in person to be filled together with the Spirit. It's something not that you're only supposed to be individually experiencing and keeping in step individually as Christ followers, but together, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Again, plural, participle and plural. Singing and making, again, plural, participle, but the point is addressing the body, and so making melody to the Lord in your, again, plural. Speaking to many people, but then here is 
just a curveball. Your plural, but heart singular. One heart. And so here's something profound as well. Even as the body, many members, many people seated here, many people online that even though we're plural, many individuals brought together, we're supposed to have one heart. And so again, the even higher context of today's passage is you could fairly say that the book of the letter to the Ephesians is all about unity, church unity, the identity of Christ's church and being one in Christ. And even though we're many, we have one heart. And going on, giving thanks. I, I hope you're getting the point, but it, it's, just, it's just, when you see it, it's, it's, it's astounding. Just how much Paul is trying to emphasize you as the body collective. So how can we not be convinced that our Christianity is meant to own an identity beyond individual personal piety? Okay? For those of us, uh, when we're honest with ourselves and we tend towards a self-righteousness, all of us have our, our, our individual uh, greater idols and, and struggles in our Christian walk, and some of us, if, if, if the, the ugly head of self-righteousness pops up more often than other uh, vices and sins, this is a warning. that It's not just about your personal piety, but this is a collective holiness that God is calling us to through this passage today. Now let me offer an application. This one is going to sting a bit for some of us. It's going to sting, but I do believe it's like a good rubbing alcohol that needs to be rubbed over uh, some COVID wounds as we still nurse COVID wounds, so to speak. And pointedly, this is, well, it will be both to people online, but also people in person. But first, to people online, we must stay connected to in-person church life. Are you staying connected to in-person life in the body? COVID has unfortunately lulled some of us to sleep with regard to our participation in church life. And there are some of us who are willing to go outside for other reasons, to even take trips, but we fail to gather in person with the church body. But also to those who gather in person, we have to all the more guard ourselves against self-righteousness. Because certainly you can think, the, the ugly thought can creep in that you are somehow better, that you are in less need of grace. So we all need to be careful, and we all need to continually, until we all attain to the knowledge of the Son of God, but, but I have to put that out there, because I think it is a direct application of today's passage. This is not to say that there are those of us with legitimate health concerns, especially with the unpredictability of ongoing mutations and variants, and I'll be the first to admit that if you hear of Omicron XE, first I thought it was Omicron XP, it's like, what, there's a new Windows update, right? But now Omicron XE, and and, and how is this one gonna play out? Is this one just gonna be a mild cold, mostly, you know, less less, uh, damaging? Uh, than other variants, or is it going to be a new variant that just wipes out a lot of people as well? 
I'll be the first to admit that, that there's, there's anxiety in my heart as we continue to just hear about new variants and whatnot. So to those with legitimate, legitimate health concerns, more grace to you. But I do not believe, if you put it to an extreme, that Christ hung on the cross for a virtual church. Just the way our science and technology is going with the metaverse and one day, I think the vision of our culture is that we'll all be wearing goggles and and doing life, going to work, doing life, and how will it affect church life that somehow even the technology taps into our brains and we feel and sense that it's so real. But I do not believe that is what Jesus hung on the cross for. So here's a thought I heard this week, though apologies, I can't recall where I heard it, but it rings true to me. If ever I don't feel like going to church, that's when I must go to church. I'll just leave that with you. A second big idea that I want, I think Paul wants us to see, and I hope you'll see with me, live wisely. Where the first big idea was, the the focus was stay connected to the church. Each of us need to work that out. Just to have an honest moment with God and let the, the scripture and the spirit convict us of our motives and our ill motives. To stay connected to the church and what that means for each of us. But now live wisely. The emphasis being wise, wisdom having our corporate communal identity reaffirmed and emphasized, we're to be unified in our wise conduct. So where do we see this? Now, let's actually start to get into the verses. Verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. There it is. Look here means to discern, to consider weightily. It also carries the notion of looking out on a horizon Uh, and just seeing the landscape, seeing the contours, and studying that landscape carefully. Now, carefully here means diligently, accurately. And so for Christ followers, the the mirror for us to look carefully is certainly Scripture, and also Scripture serves as a lens to look through out on our culture and our world to discern what's going out in the world as well. And walk here, it's a metaphoric word for just daily life. As you go about your life, your daily business. And so Paul, he says here, look carefully then not how you walk, not as, sorry, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And notice here, he takes the time to contrast. He could have just said, look carefully then how you walk as wise. But no, Paul wants to paint a clear contrast to compare wise living to unwise living. And wise here means skilled and well-planned. It's a very technical word. It's a word that carries the notion of being able to think through reasonably, wisely, carefully, and making a sound decision. And so you put all all these ideas together, and we're seeing that Paul is exhorting us to live our daily lives and make our daily choices carefully. It's about daily choices. All the small choices that become the pearls that get strung together to make up your life. So in light of God, 
our Father, Son, and Spirit, His Scriptures, again, to repeat something I just said, that the Scriptures first stand as a mirror for you and I to look into individually and as a church, and then also a lens through which to look out on culture. So it's a very practical exhortation, speaking to very practical application in everyday practical life. So John Stott, uh, he's very helpful, and he reflects on this passage. Everything worth doing requires care. We all take trouble over the things which seem to us to matter, our job, our education, our home and family, our hobbies, our dress and appearance. So as Christians, we must take trouble over our Christian life. We must treat it as the serious thing it is. This is a wonderful just paraphrase of what Paul is calling us to, to look carefully how we live, not as unwise, but as wise. So what does wise living as the church look like? And Paul explains, if we're going to be wise as a church to live wisely, make the best use of the time. Why? Because the days are evil. Now, this is a neat Greek word here. This is actually all one word, one verb, and it basically means to redeem. You could just paraphrase this, redeem the time, because the days are evil. This word redeem, it's the exact same word for redeem that's used more concretely in the the, the notion of redeem in Galatians. Paul uses it again in Galatians chapter 3 verse 13 when referring to Christ redeeming us from the bondage of slavery to sin to freedom in his grace. So I'll just read it, Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That's the notion, the the impact, the, the feel that we're supposed to have of making the best use of the time. And so if we wanted to paraphrase uh, Paul's other use of the word Christ um, is giving us the best use of our lives. He's giving us the best use of our lives by saving us from the curse of the law, by becoming a curse for us, and therefore the other way around as well, redeem the time. Now what's more, we see Paul give similar exhortation to the Christ followers in Colossae, the city of Colossae, in his letter uh, to the Colossians. And there's some cut and paste going on here. Uh, I don't know if he literally cut his scroll and pasted it onto a new scroll, but uh, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Exact same phrase and verb, but in Colossians. But now here, he elaborates, making the best use of your time, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, meaning uh, having a preservative nature, giving life to others, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And the context here is outsiders, those who don't believe yet. And so, therefore, when Paul says back in Ephesians 4, verse 17, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and we put it together with Paul's similar exhortation in Colossians 4, the verse here on the screen, we see clearly that a redeemed and best use of our time is to verbally witness to Christ Jesus before those who don't believe yet. You want to know one God-pleasing, honoring way to redeem your time? 
It's to develop the skill and courage to be able to weave Jesus into your conversation every day. Look, even uh, being a, a vocational pastor for 20 plus years, it still always feels nerve-wracking for me to insert Jesus. I don't naturally have just this bold uh, personality that can just speak out whatever, and, and I'm, I'm not naturally the opinionated type. I'm on a dad's group chat, and they were talking about hypocrisy and the government and so forth. And I, I thought, okay, but it just came to my mind, well, Jesus says something about that. And so I just quickly chimed in, yeah, good old hypocrisy. Jesus had something to say about that. First, take out the log in your own eye before you take out the speck in your brother. And, and I thought I would get some, you know, just chatter going on there, but it was just cricket for the next day or so. <laughs> Right, And so what I'm trying to say is, I'm trying. It's not natural to me either. If someone wants to talk, no problem. But to initiate that, it's still a skill and muscle that I'm trying to learn and flex, and sometimes not with fruitful results, at least on the surface. But if we're to understand Paul's exhortation here, making the best use of a time, what does it mean to live wisely? It, it means to learn to grow in inserting Jesus into our conversations. We're to feel this burden of a redeemed use of time all the more because the days are evil. Now the opposite would be to spend our time and our words in futility uh, in a way that neglects a reckoning of our time spent. Put it this way, you know, just think of the metaphor of investments. Will the way we invested our time result in eternal fruit or something of value that will just crash when we put it through the judgment and evaluation of God? When Paul says the days are evil, now on the flip side, uh, the other side of the same coin is that this is still the chapter of grace in God's his story. We're in a chapter of grace in God's redemptive, his story. But the chapter of grace means that as the pages are flipped, eventually the next chapter is judgment. And so even thinking of our Lord's most clearest directive, his, his banner cry and marching orders, the Great Commission, to go and make disciples. This lines up well with our Lord's directive. So I appreciate what Matthew Henry says reflecting on today's passage. He comments, ignorance of our duty as Christ's followers and neglect of our souls show the greatest folly. Ignorance of our duty and neglect of our souls, souls show the greatest folly. And so, reflecting on Paul calling us to not be unwise. Finally, I hope you'll see with me that Paul now is instead, as an alternative, calling us to treasure eternal joy. Right? The prayer. Lord, help me to live wisely for, help me wisely be affectionate for eternal joy. 
Treasure eternal joy. Our appetite needs to change. Our palate, our spiritual palate has to change. So first, let's see Paul's unequivocal command to the church. So we continue on in verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Again here, this is second person plural. The unequivocal command is to not get drunk with wine. Why? Because Paul explains clearly here that drunkenness leads to debauchery. Debauchery essentially just means excessiveness, but it also usually has wrapped up with it excessiveness in, uh, sexually, uh, in terms of drink and so forth. Now when you look at human culture, from even in the Bible, from way in the beginning to our current times, human culture has not changed much when it comes to strong drink, excesses, and its accompanying effects. Why? Because the human heart hasn't changed much. Essentially, the heart in 2022 is still an idolatrous heart without and apart from Christ, a son of disobedience that wants to uh, reject God and have its own autonomous way, its self-oriented way, and from that selfish heart come lots of sins and lots of excesses. The human heart has not changed, and therefore human culture hasn't changed too much. So even 2,000, some 2,000 years ago, Paul addressing this situation is no different from Toronto 2022. On the surface, we're a civilized Western society and culture. But certainly, Toronto has an underbelly, a certain nightlife, a certain secret life. And there's a lot of debauchery and uh, things going on in the underbelly of, of our life, as, even as Torontonians. And so this command, this exhortation, this wisdom is still for us today. And to turn to another apostle, Peter, and a fellow elder, he agrees as much in his letter. In his first letter, chapter 4, he says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, meaning temporary, immediate happiness, gratification, passions, referring to just those lusts, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. You go to any university frosh week, this is a perfect description of Frosh Week. It still goes on in our society, not only in, at the college level, but corporate level, and, and just, it, it's there because the human heart has not changed. So remember the context of today's passage, even though we're talking about wisdom right now, Paul is outlining the Christian follower's sexual ethic, and so this command to avoid drunkenness is entirely in connection to the command to a biblical sexual ethic. Now Paul, or sorry, Peter makes it that much more clear. He connects the dots. Overall, I think in his writing, he was a little bit more concrete and down to earth than, than Paul being the brilliant, abstract, theological mind that he is. And so Peter connects the dots very clearly for us. And so this command to avoid drunkenness is entirely in connection to the command to a biblical sexual ethic. And what's equally, if not more profound, however, is Paul's complementary, the, the antithesis, the anti-command. 
And so we see it here. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But, so this is the anti-command, the opposite, the antithesis. Now, what, 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 what would you, you know, if you didn't already see this, but be filled with the Spirit, what would you naturally think is the opposite of don't get drunk? Instead, maybe you go to an AA meeting if you need help that way. Or just drink in moderation. Or what I'm trying to show is that th- this is counterintuitive to the natural mind. But he says the solution and the right alternative to not getting drunk with wine and living the life of orgies and drinking parties and such and debauchery, excessiveness, is instead to be filled with the Spirit. To be filled with the Spirit. Where drunkenness and unbridled sexual license seek out some twisted form of happiness and pleasure, Christ followers instead, and now it makes complete sense why Paul is uh, addressing second person plural. He's talking about parties here. He's talking about a culture. And instead, when we gather, we're meant to have an alternative culture, an alternative party, so to speak. If you think of even the effects of, of alcohol and the, the joys, the, the physical, sensory pleasures of sex, there's some compare and contrast where the human heart is looking to those physical things for some kind of feeling of pleasure, Paul is saying, no, there's a joy and even uh, an indwelling spirit that can provide pleasure beyond those physical sensory things that you're looking for. And so Paul says here, be filled with the spirit, second person, plural, a command. So what does it mean to be filled with the spirit? Paul gives us three evidences here. And the first is be filled with the Spirit. And what that means is addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. What Paul is first very practically and obviously describing here is corporate worship. It's what's going on here. I hope and pray for the sake of the name of Christ and that that he is the real God in your life that he longs to be, that, that you leave today with a sense of joy. Because this corporate worship where we are addressing, as we're singing, there's something beautiful going on. We not, might not be literally, intentionally looking at each other That would be a youth group thing that I would do as a youth pastor. Okay, everyone turn to each other and sing to each other. (laughs) But I won't do that here. Um, But as we're singing, as we're declaring these beautiful truths and lyrics and psalms that we sang this morning, we're addressing one another in this corporate worship setting. That's why all the more, um, people online, please, there's nothing stopping you, please come and join us here physically. Because there's something real that happens here, that we're filled with the Spirit together here, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and singing and making melody to 
the Lord with our heart. Now, a bit more abstractly, I think another application then is that in our conversations, in our actual day-to-day conversations as Christ followers, there should be some habit, some conversational habit of encouraging one another with psalms. So this depends on us being in the word and and each of us individually knowing scripture and and not coming off in this, you know, um, pontificating way or self-righteous, holier-than-thou way. I think each of us know. We, we, we have a sense of each other's spirit and where we're coming from. But our church, the community, should be a place where there's a good, loving, humble, conversational habit where, where, and we're willing to receive just a lot of quotes from the Psalms or suggesting a, a good song or, or, or quoting a lyric for the point of encouraging our faith? Is that a part of our conversational habits? And we're to do this because, especially the Psalms and any solid Christian hymn or song will give us an eternal perspective. A a perspective on unfading joy in Christ. And so we're to have an appetite and palate to treasure God's, the Father's weighty, eternal glory, joy, and happiness. Something that's unfading. Another evidence is, uh, of being filled with the Spirit is just skipping down to verse 20. Giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a lot going on here. Paul a way of just packing in huge ideas into just you know, a few words. And so first, giving thanks always. Put it this way, you know, a human analogy is, um, you know, after a long day, what, what I look, look forward to is just being with uh, my family, or perhaps reconnecting with a friend over the phone or video chat. So, something about those precious relationships, and when you have more of that person in your life, your heart gets filled no matter what's going on. And that, to an infinite degree, is what we are to experience with God. To be filled with the Spirit. Won't get deep into it today, but there's a difference between being filled with the Spirit as opposed to being baptized in the Spirit. Meaning, when you place your faith in Christ, if you've, you've, you've confessed Jesus, you are baptized in the Spirit. And the baptism of the Spirit leads to the indwelling of the Spirit. And so you can think of the indwelling Holy Spirit like that dear roommate that you live with or your your spouse, your children, people that you are closest to and see the most every day. And those are the relationships that you hope will be the most filled with love and joy through the day because you're with them every day. And so the indwelling Spirit who resides in us, we're now to be filled with the Spirit meaning having a wonderful fellowship with him day to day. And so when you're in the presence of the Holy Spirit, just as 
even though I have a rough day, but there's a good loving relationship in my life that can bring some comfort to that difficult day, the Holy Spirit all the more helps us to give thanks always for everything, the good and the bad and the ugly. And the perspective that he gives us is that we are God's child. To remember the Father. And another perspective he gives us, because it's in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that God is redeeming. Even the worst of your situations, the most confusing of your situations, that God beyond your understanding is redeeming your life. That's another evidence of being filled with the Spirit. See, to me it makes complete sense. The dots connect so clearly. Why do, in general, humans go after um, illicit sexual satisfaction, uh, just binge drinking and so forth? It's when their lives are amok and they don't have a way to be thankful. They don't see redemption in their life. So it becomes a way to sort of wash over their pain. And so it makes complete sense that the antithesis of being drunk and seeking excess and debauchery would be to just be saturated and filled with the Spirit. To be able to give thanks always for everything and to submit my life to the redemptive plan of my Lord Jesus Christ. The final evidence is submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, but we're going to save that for uh, in two weeks when we start diving into uh, Paul's treatise on marriage, okay? So that said, join me. I'm just responding to this passage with this prayer. Before we pray, what I want you to recognize is that to be filled with the Spirit is a command. You, you can't will the indwelling of the Spirit or the, the, the baptism of the Spirit. That is a God thing where He elects, where He saves, where He adopts by the work, His will, His counsel, and, and the work of Christ. But to be filled with the Spirit, did you notice, is a command. It's both corporate, today it's corporate, but you also see commands to individuals, individually, day to day, when we're perhaps not together, to continue to be filled with the Spirit. But the point being, it's a command. That we are to do our part to seek God together, to worship Him together. But where that starts is that our affections are changing. So now, the, I hope you notice, the prayer's tweaked. At the beginning was, make me, help me, wisely affectionate for eternal joy. But no, now the proper, we know from Scripture, it's, it's, it's us. And so let us do our part to be affectionate together for eternal joy. So let's, let's pray this together. Lord, Make us wisely affectionate for eternal joy.